Number 4. God's Mission, 4th Quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your great love that makes it possible for those of us who love you and want to be fully filled with your Holy Spirit to come together and study and learn more about you and and your great love for us, Father. May our hearts be filled today as we continue this study with John Pauline, and may all of us receive your blessing through the Holy Spirit. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this is the fourth in a series on mission, where we have been looking, first of all, at mission from God's perspective. God is the original missionary, and last time we took a look at some of the challenges that come from doing mission, especially cross-culturally. This is going to be an interesting lesson, different from the others, and that is that it focuses on a single Bible story, and that's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I probably wouldn't have assumed uh, coming in that that might be a good starting point for mission, but let's take a look at what we have here and see what conclusions we can come to. So I invite you to go to the handout and go to number one, where it says read Genesis 18, 1 to 15, which we will do shortly. The first verse says Yahweh appeared to Abraham. So who is this Yahweh? And how does Abraham respond to the three visitors who pass by his tent? What must Lot have learned from Abraham during their time together? And what might Abraham's hospitality have to do with mission? So just a few things to think about. And I'd like to invite you to give careful attention to the reading of Genesis 18 and verses 1 through 15. It's about a third or so of the story in the book of Genesis. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, My Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of choice flour. Knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant, who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where's your wife Sarah? And he said, there in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season and your wife, Sarah, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. He said, oh yes, you did laugh. 
You can see a little bit of humor coming in there at the end. So coming back to verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. So it's interesting, it says the Lord appeared to Abraham. And the word for the Lord is Yahweh. So this is the very name of God. It was not an angel. It was not some representative being. It was God himself that took human form and appeared to Abraham. According to the book Patriarchs and Prophets, this was Jesus. And I think as we go through the story, we may find reason to suspect that there's a hint of that even in the biblical text. So this is the third time that you have a statement like this. And Yahweh appeared to Abraham. You find it first in chapter 12 and then also in chapter 17. So the question is, did Abraham recognize that this was Yahweh? Or was he perhaps not sure? It isn't clear from the text itself whether Abraham sensed that it was Yahweh at this point or uh, simply was acting as if these individuals were human beings. Verse 2 says, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of the tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Since it was the middle of the day, Abraham was probably nodding off a bit, and suddenly he opens his eyes and he sees three men standing there. It doesn't say that they were moving, but presumably they were on the street, you know, outside the tent, which would simply have been a dirt track, most likely. And they were stopping as if trying to decide what their next move might be. And so it says that Abraham turned from the entrance to the tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. This word for bowing low to the ground is the word for prayer in the ancient context. So it's almost as if Abraham does recognize who this is, but it's also his actions of the appropriate for a stranger, especially an honored stranger. But he is showing great humility and hospitality in doing this. So he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Now, the word Lord here is not the same as Yahweh. This is Adonai, and that's something you might say, a wife might say to her husband, or a man might say to the boss at work. Uh, so he says, if I've found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. In the Hebrew, that's a singular so Abraham is not addressing the three strangers. He's addressing the one. Apparently, one of them stood out in some way, and he feels that he's in the presence of greatness. We call it sometimes gravitas. There are certain people that walk in the room, and, and everybody just kind of senses that there's greatness there. So Abraham speaks directly to the one that was identified by the narrator as Yahweh. And then notice how he presents his case. Let a little water be brought, and you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed, and then go on your way now that you've come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham here comes across as an example of hospitality. He is offering shelter He's offering a chance to freshen up, to wash their hands and feet, to eat some food, have some drink in the middle of a hot day. So Abraham reaches out to strangers 
and offers good old Middle Eastern hospitality. Now, now it starts to get interesting here. In verse 6, Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. All right, so first impression here, they were not expecting this. They were not prepared for visitors. Everything is from scratch. Here's some flour. Bake some bread. That's going to take a little bit of time. At least they do have wonderful flatbread that we noticed in Turkey not too long ago, where they would just pour some dough over a kind of a little dome that would have a fire under it. And the bread would just sort of like uh, fry or bake on that dome. They'd turn it over and, and then it would be ready to go. Good stuff. And that doesn't take all that long, but something like that. So prepare food, everything from scratch. Go get an animal out of the field, etc. Now, I will point out to you that Abraham had all the ingredients for a cheeseburger. Okay. He's got some cheese. He's got some beef and he's got some bread. And so he brings these cheeseburgers out and sets them before these strangers. And he stands beside like a waiter, showing again his humility, etc. What were the strangers doing while they were preparing all this? I mean, even if the bread might go fairly quickly, it probably would have taken at least an hour or so to get the burgers going. When you're starting with a, you know, moving around calf, that's going to take a little time. I suspect they simply took a nap. And after traveling all morning, uh, that probably felt good under the tree. It was reasonably cool, etc. While we're here, keep your finger in Genesis and just go to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. All right. So I think it's pretty clear that the author of Hebrews is thinking of this story. And he says, I encourage you believers to show hospitality because sometimes you just might be, it might be an angel. Anybody ever felt like they've met an angel? That would be a story like this one here. So Abraham is doing his hospitality thing. And then things get a little dicey. Where's your wife, Sarah? They ask him. They're in the tent. The Lord said, I'll return about this time next year and your wife will have a son. And Sarah's back there saying, I don't think so. This is not very likely. So what you have here is a message that's really difficult to believe. And in a sense, it's a prophecy. It's saying this time next year, things are going to be different. So it's a prophecy that can be verified. But when she hears it, Sarah says, yeah. I don't think so. So going on, verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I have a child now that I'm old? How did Yahweh know that she was laughing and what she was saying inside of her head? It's a demonstration that this was, in fact, God. He was omniscient. He knew everything that was going on. I'll return to you at an appointed time next year. And Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. 
And he said, yes, you did laugh. So what tone of voice do you think Yahweh used when speaking to Sarah? Yes, you did laugh. How do you envision that scene? What, what's the dynamic going on here? Is he playful? Is he joking? Is he serious and saying, you know, you didn't handle this very well? How do you envision God's tone of voice here? Bob? Well, if this is actually Yahweh Christ, later on, when he met the woman who had had five husbands, he kind of had a little fun with her, saying, yeah, you partly tell the truth. <laughs> so you could imagine that. And the other thing that's interesting is that actually shows that Christ came to this world, if this is Christ, multiple times, because he'd come for Moses. And obviously, he's walking in the Garden of Eden. So actually, he's been to the Holy Land quite a few times before he comes as a baby. How many times has he actually been to this? I wonder if he remembers this later ever when he comes later as Christ. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting that this seems to suggest it's not the first time for an incarnation, if you will, that Christ can take human form on multiple occasions. And one suggestion that scholars call angelomorphic Christology, that'll be on the test to remember that. Uh, but anyway, it's the idea that Christ sometimes appears as an angel, particularly in the book of Revelation, where you have angels appearing and you get the impression, I think this is really Jesus. All right. All right, let's listen to a few comments on this. Michael? I don't think it was accusatory. Oh, yes, you did. More of a kind of a, yes, you did. And I've had those kind of conversations with my wife. She'll say so. I told you so. No, you didn't. And she's not mad. It's just that my memory doesn't comport with her memory. Mm -hmm. So, but it was to get her attention, to let her know, I know what you said. I know what you said in your head, what you were thinking. You see, if she thought these were just three random strangers, then they're just blowing smoke, trying to be nice or something. You know, to, Oh, you got a problem here? Yeah, it's going to be fine. Yeah, Everything's going to be good. Don't worry about it. It's all going to work out. You know? But once it's clear, maybe she mumbled something, but in her head, maybe she laughed. It was a bit audible, but in her head, what she was saying in her head, only God could know. And so now Sarah knows who she's dealing with and to take this seriously. Darla? Well, I think the fact that it says she was afraid, and that's why she lied, showed that there was some seriousness to this. But I can only see Christ with a twinkle in his eye going, oh, yeah. Because I don't think God wants to make the fear larger. He wants to make the fear less. Because she lied because she was afraid. So it's interesting. That fear comes after she knows it's God, and after she knows that he reads her mind. <laughs> so it's a reflexive action here. Uh, fascinating. All right, Livius? Yeah, I agree. I think when it says that Sarah laughed to herself, I think this is an indication that it was an internal smirk in her mind. And I think the individual here, God or Jesus, recognizes because he answers her. She says, I did not laugh, meaning I did not laugh externally. And he agrees. He said, no, that's right. You did not verbally laugh, but you did laugh. And I think it's an indication of an understanding of being able to read the mind and the heart that's happening here. 
And I have a second thought or a second question. It says, so the men turn from there and it uses the word as men for these individuals. Do you think that Abraham and Sarah knew that this was God talking to them? Or was it more of like a Melchizedek type figure or prophet of God or spokesperson for God? Well, it doesn't say angels here. So it's these lawyer. They recognize that. The look of them, human beings. But obviously by the time that they get up to leave, Abraham and Sarah know exactly who they're dealing with. Yeah. And so that was what caused her fear. And in fear, she just blabbered out whatever came to her head. And God, I think, was a bit, I get the humor idea in all of this. And, you know, Jesus with the Samaritan woman, a few other places, Jesus seems to have a funny side to him that maybe isn't highlighted enough. Henry? From my perspective, I feel that Abraham knew that this was God. This is not the first time that he has a conversation with him. This is multiple encounters already, and he has followed the instructions. He has failed on some of them. So there has to be some connection. And Livius was asking if this was a kind of a Melchizedek encounter, but with Melchizedek, he didn't, at least the record doesn't say that he bowed down and that he called him Lord. It's just a regular encounter. And I see the Abraham encountering with kings and everybody else, Abimelech and Pharaoh, and he's not doing all of the things that he did with these three individuals. So it gives me the impression that he knows that this is God. And that's exactly the reason why Sarah is afraid, because she's realizing something that she probably didn't know, that God is able to read minds. And you were asking, what was the tone of voice? The story doesn't say, but Hebrews tells me the perspective from God, that by faith, Sarah received the strength because she was convinced that the one who had made the promise was faithful. So as Darla was mentioning, that communication from fear, the response from God was, hey, take it easy. I am not rubbing it in your face. Yeah, it's unbelievable. You are 90 years old, right? And yeah, I take it. I will be surprised as well if it will be me. I may assume God saying that type of conversation and reinforced by the expression in Hebrews that he wasn't rubbing it actually is saying it was a hard time for somebody to believe this type of news. I like you carefully thinking about the whole context and framing your thoughts on the basis of various pieces of evidence. Let me share a couple pieces of evidence that might lean me in the other direction, just for the joy of this conversation. First of all, Abraham doesn't call him Yahweh. He calls him Adonai, which is a more common term that you would do to almost anybody that you thought was at least your equal or a superior of some kind, or if you were in a hospitality situation. So Abraham's behavior is not out of line. And for evidence for that, I would go to chapter 19. When the angels come in, the men (laughs) come into Sodom, what does Lot do? Same thing, and invites them to the house. So it would seem to me at least those two pieces of evidence suggest that maybe Abraham did not know. Maybe he had a suspicion because the narrator introduces the story the same way as the previous ones. But Abraham does not seem to be sure, at least, that this is God. And so what he's doing is more how he handles hospitality situations. This is how you advance biblical knowledge. I've been reading a little John Wesley lately, and Wesley felt that it was very important to have conversation. He called it conference, is the word he used. 
conversation about the Bible, because the Bible doesn't reveal itself just at first glance. But as you converse about the Bible, and as you think about what your community has thought before, and you're doing all of that, that's when the Bible becomes clarified a little more. So we practiced a little of that just now. Rita? I think we tend to think that the Lord, or whoever it was, actually said to Sarah, why did you laugh? But she was inside the tent, behind the tent flap, apparently. I mean, not that there was a soundproof. And it does say that she laughed to herself and thought things. But the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say? So she didn't need to say anything. But I think her conscious must have picked her and thought, you know, whoever that is out there knows what I'm thinking. Because I didn't say anything out loud. He's asking Abraham. I'm going to have to answer to Abraham if I, <laughs> when these people go away. So I think she's maybe trying to cover up herself in the eyes of Abraham, as well as these men saying, I didn't laugh. I didn't make any sound. How could you have heard me laugh? Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you. Henry? It's difficult from the way that the story is narrated to see who was the one talking of these three individuals. To whom was he, when he's making the comments, Adonai, or this or that, it's difficult because it's not only one person. There are three people in there. And verse 22 says that at one point, two of the three continue walking. They go on their way. But Abraham continues to be in the presence of Jehovah, of Yahweh. And then he addresses him as Yahweh. So that's what I am a little bit confused, like to think that does he know him? It seems to me that he knows him. He may not know the other two. And that is where the story doesn't tell us exactly to whom is he talking in the prior comments. So this story continues to give me the impression that he knows who God is, who Jehovah is. He doesn't know exactly what the other two are because he continues to be with him and addresses him as the judge of all the earth. Yeah, well, Abraham clearly is talking to singular in verse 3. So there's one person that he's talked to of the three, presumably, that is Yahweh. Now, in my Bible, in 13, it says, then Yahweh said to Abraham, the Lord said to Abraham. But in the Hebrew, that's simply a pronoun. He spoke, presumably the same one as in verse 3. I'll go with you halfway, Henry. I don't think Abraham was sure that this was Yahweh in verse 3, but he had the sense that it was somebody special. And so I think by the time of verse 22, he knows who he's dealing with, especially after the Sarah episode. Bill? Reading it a little bit further down in the middle of verse 25, Abraham says, Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? This is when Abraham is bargaining with the Lord to save Sodom. Does that confirm that he knows definitely whom he's speaking with? It's not a life and death question, but I think they definitely know who they're dealing with after the Sarah episode. You know, when Sarah in panic lies to God, I think you all should confess that at some point in your life, you probably lied to God too, right? Like the day you walked into church and they surprised you and said, we need someone to do the opening prayer. And at that moment, you're about to punch your kids. And you walk up on the platform with a big smile and say, it's so good to be in the house of the Lord today, right? Is that telling the truth? Not entirely. <laughs> you know, 
but we are human beings and in the presence of God, we sometimes do irrational things, even so. So I think it's clear they know who it is by the 20s of this chapter. But the question was simply, did Abraham already figure out that it was God before he went out to greet them? I think that's certainly less clear. Now, the lesson breaks away from the story for a bit, and I've put that in number two, something I thought it would be fun to follow up on briefly. Ellen White notes, wherever Abraham pitched his tent, he set up beside it the altar for sacrifice and worship. When the tent was removed, the altar remained, and many a roving Canaanite, whose knowledge of God had been gained from the life of Abraham, his servant, tarried at that altar to offer sacrifice to Jehovah in the book Education. So she suggests that Abraham had a practice of building an altar whenever he stopped. They were wandering. They were nomads uh, living intense. And when they would pitch their tents, he would create an altar out of stones from the area. There's plenty of stones in the land of Canaan and leave the altar there. And others who knew him, when they'd see these altars of Abraham, would sometimes be minded to worship. And so the question to consider, what would be a modern day equivalent of Abraham's altar? Is there some way in which you and I can impact the community in a way that will be remembered after we're gone? You know, maybe the answer is no, but I just thought I'd throw that out in case anyone has an idea. I think Sherry could probably answer that, along with Gary, that in a sense, the Pine Null Tape Ministry is like building an altar that you leave behind and will continue to influence people in years. So that's maybe an obvious one, right? But can anyone think of something else? What would be a modern day equivalent of Abraham's altar? Writing books, I guess, could be another one. Dan? I think that there are a lot of things that we as we just do. Our educational institutions might be a good example, and maybe even our medical institutions. I think those are in many ways, if they're run properly, people see a different aspect of us and maybe see God through us. If those institutions are run properly, that is. Mm -hmm. Okay, Michael? Various aspects of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Camp meetings, its schools. A lot of the students in the Adventist schools are not Adventists, but their parents want them to get a good education and a foundation in believing in God, and so they send them to an Adventist school. That's the same kind of thing. All right. Perhaps the thought that comes to my mind is the way you take care of your yard and so on. That has a distinct impression on the neighborhood without saying a word, that if your yard is the most rundown one on the block, neighbors probably don't want to hear your advice on spiritual matters. So. Yeah, just something to think about. What kind of legacy will we leave when we leave town or leave this earth? Will there be those who remember? So I thought that was worth sharing. Let's go to number three and continue the story. And Terry, you would read verses 16 through 33. So we'll have to focus our attention because that's a long reading, but it's a story. So it should be interesting. Go ahead. Then the men set out from there and they looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? No, for I have chosen him, that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, 
How great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and how very grave their sin. I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not forgive it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, Let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And again, he spoke to him, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak just once more. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. A good host tends to accompany people to their car, or if they're walking partway home before turning back. So. This is what Abraham is doing here. He accompanies these strangers on their way for a distance before returning back to the business on the ranch that he had. And so you have four people walking down the road. You have the three strangers and Abraham. Who is God talking to in verses 17 to 19? Who is the Lord talking to here? He is talking to the other angels because he's referring to Abraham in the third person. He's talking to them about Abraham. And the question I would ask is, why is Yahweh taking this time to engage Abraham? He's explaining it kind of in these verses. Why does he want to talk to Abraham before he goes to Sodom? Okay, Livius. Doesn't Abraham have family in Sodom? I was wondering while Terry was reading, was Abraham asking 40, 30, 20, 10? Is he asking because he knows that Lot's family's in there and that's why he's asking? And is that an indication of what Lot's lifestyle was about? Mm-hmm. Well, if Abraham thinks maybe there's 10 there, all we know about is Lot, his wife, and two daughters. So the assumption yeah. would be there may be a few other people in town yeah. that are at least deserving of some mercy. Yeah. Michael? Well, up to this point, it's pretty much been one-on-one between God and Abraham. And by asking these questions, he's learned a lot more about the character of God, that God is, in fact, merciful, not just totally vengeful. And so I think that's an important lesson, not only for Abraham, but for everyone, including us. I think we need to understand that most of the gods in the ancient world were quite capricious 
quite bloodthirsty, quite arbitrary, unforgiving, etc. For Abraham to say what he says here, a little bit later on in the text, you know, far be it from you implies that he knows something about God. He knows quite a bit more than the average person in his world. But the question is, you know, God could simply have gone on and let it go from here. But he talks to the other two. And he says, hey, shall we let Abraham in on what is going on here? And that's the special part of it. And I guess the question was, what did Yahweh have to gain from bringing Abraham into his confidence here? John? God brings Abraham into his confidence because Lot isn't the only person that he knows in Sodom and Gomorrah. In that it's not so long in the story that Abraham's risked his own life to rescue not only Lot, but the inhabitants of Sodom from the kings who uh, took them captive. So potentially, Abraham knows quite a number of people in Sodom. Uh, a good observation from the text itself, going back to chapter 14, Abraham has dealt with Sodom before, and he knows some people, and he knows, for example, that for all his faults, the king of Sodom cares about his people. He says, look, you guys can keep all the loot. He says, just please give me the people back. You know, I care about them. And so Abraham has a sense that maybe it's not a hopeless situation. Lou. And it seems to me that it shows the friendship that Abraham had with God, that he felt comfortable enough to actually bargain with him and keep coming back to him, knowing his graciousness and his loving character. And that took a lot of courage, really, for Abraham to be in that role and basically bargain with God. So I think that shows how much of a friendship they had. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting in the Bible, the people who are closest to God are the ones who argue with him. What are God's three closest friends in the Old Testament? Abraham, Moses, and Job. And what do we know about all three? <laughs> They're all busy arguing with God to some degree. In other words, God loves a relationship, an honest, open relationship. He knows what you're thinking. It's when you speak what you're thinking that it says something about your honesty and your openness uh, that God can trust in a relationship. So, yeah, God shares with Abraham because they do have a special relationship. And God wants to train him in a real sense because he's going to, as it says in the text, he's going to mentor generations of followers of God. And therefore, he needs all the training he can get. Bob. It also suggests that Abraham understands his, in this case, his client. He's acting a little bit like an advocate for the municipalities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he has an idea uh, that who he's speaking for doesn't have a real good pedigree. <laughs> he seems to start out from 50, but he's bargaining down pretty far. If anybody's ever been in a plea bargain situation, you may have an idea that you say, I don't think we have a real good case here. <laughs> so uh, Abraham has a little side job as attorney general for Sodom. <laughs> Pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Henry. In your previous question about to whom is he talking to, it seems to me like these three are the Godhead. They all know all that information. There is no need to have this conversation in between uh, amongst them because they already know that all of those facts. And that's why they are there with the mission. 
but it gives me the impression that it's for us, the readers. It's kind of the narrator in the background to give us the information in case we are missing it that is voiced in there for our benefit to know that God takes into account Abraham and all, in spite of all the failings, he continues to have trust in him. Yeah, he hasn't been shown very good signs so far, but he will keep his family on the intention. To me, that's remarkable on keeping that character alive in spite of the shortcomings. And obviously, Abraham, about this relationship that they have had before, these conversations, knows exactly that there is no risk on speaking up and being able to contradict God, because he has never been threatened by God, even when he has had shortcomings. So what's going on here is mentoring in a real sense. God is mentoring Abraham, and that's why this is important, even if it doesn't change what actually happens. It's still important for Abraham because of the role that he's going to play in the future for God. All right, Rita. Verse 17. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And he goes on to say, for I have chosen him. If God has chosen Abraham, how can he hide anything from him? It's important that Abraham gets the true picture of God, that he can say in the future, God told me everything, told me he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. That was his plan. And I challenged him on it, but I accepted that. He told me. So by knowing the truth about God, knowing God's inner heart, then he's able to become that blessing for the nations. Because if he didn't know God, if God didn't trust him, because God had chosen him, what would that be saying about God? All right, Larry. There was something unique in the way God described Abraham in 12.3 because he's also using that same idea in 1818. But listening to this, I'm wondering how this conversation may have had an impact on Hagar and her son and the things that follow them in the future, because they had to have also been aware of what was happening during this meal and the conversation. And that awareness of what was happening is even bigger than that. And we'll touch base in a moment. But first, Dan. I like what we're talking about now and its connection to the New Testament. We're all familiar with John 15, 15, where Christ says, I've told you everything and you're no longer considered servants, but you're friends. And Christ's approach is so consistent. He does this in the Old Testament. We see it very vividly here. And the New Testament does the same thing. And it gives me great confidence and the idea that God is the Alpha and Omega, he doesn't change. And the fact that he would consistently deal with people who are his friends the same way, whether it's Old or New Testament. All right, let's go on to verse 20. It says, the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not... I will know. Now, we're running a little short on time, so I'm thinking we might discuss that for a bit. Where's this outcry coming from? I would suggest it is the unfallen beings in the universe. 
We don't maybe think about this as often as we can or as we could, but it seems to me, given what we know about the cosmic conflict, that God is not only coming under pressure from accusations of Satan, but God is also coming under pressure from the righteous, who would at some point say, you've got to do something. Why are you not acting? This is terrible what they are doing. It's going to ruin your plan on the face of the earth. God is clearly referring to something that's gotten his attention. There's an outcry out there, and I've got to come down here and do something. And so the audience here is not just Abraham and Hagar, which is an excellent suggestion. The audience here is the entire universe. What God is saying to Abraham, what Abraham is saying to God, the outcome, etc., all is playing a role as evidence in the wider universe of what God's character is like. And I think, among other things, God wanted Abraham to develop the kind of compassion for the lost that God has. Whatever he may know about Sodom, God cares about Sodom, and he was drawing Abraham out to care as deeply about Sodom. One thing I would have asked and let you work with a little bit is what was the sin of Sodom? What was it that caused such an outcry? What was the troubling thing? And I know that generally people gravitate to chapter 19 and talk about the events there and say that must be it. But there's actually something else. Henry. Oftentimes, and the traditional view in Christianity is that is homosexual practices. It's the problem in there. If that was the problem, we have issues because in the book of Judges is Benjamin's tribe, the one that is doing exactly the same behavior, and they didn't get burned. So I don't find that a solid position, but it seems to me that the problem is using a gift of love, sex, in order to abuse, to put power, authority, subdue people to a form that is a practice that is supposed to be showing this sublime way of lobbying is using to abuse. And we still have those practices today when we have armies going and attacking another country and raping women and men. So we continue to have the same practice today. And to me, that's the ultimate way to show, do not have any respect for the sacred form of love. And so if Ezekiel told us that the sin of Sodom was sexual violence, we would believe it. We'd have no difficulty in doing that. But actually, that's not what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel kind of has a summary of the sin of Sodom. And if you haven't seen that before, you'll be, find this very interesting. Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 49. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. That's stunning, isn't it? A little closer to home, perhaps, than sexual violence might be in terms of something any of us have ever thought of doing. The problem with Sodom is that Sodom neglected the poor and needy, that Sodom was overfed, proud, and unconcerned about the troubles of others, and that this is what got God upset. This is where the outcry came from. Fascinating little sideline. All right, John? One of God's main concerns and warnings to Israel later on in the story is to respect and treat respectfully the stranger, the orphan, the widow, and this is exactly what Sodom is guilty of. 
the people of Sodom don't know that these two men are angels, and yet they're strangers, and they want to abuse these strangers, and I'm sure this wasn't an isolated case. Mm -hmm. Yes. All right, Larry? Henry's comment made me think that love is the fulfilling of the law, and the way Henry described what he perceived the problem was, it's the height of anti-love. And so the sin really was the loss of love or the loss of respect for love, which love held no value or consideration in their community. Michael? It's very common among humans. We think of what is the gravest sin is to think it's some sin of some sexual orientation or action or failure or something of this nature. When I think really what it is, is abandoning God. I don't need God. I'm all right on my own. And you people who believe in God are wasting your time. And this notion, and I see it prevalent today in society, is that we don't need God. We can do quite well without him. And that is such a terrible, terrible abomination and a sin. I don't know if you knew this, Michael, but you were virtually paraphrasing Romans chapter 1, where Paul says the root sin is rebellion against God. Uh, the sexual perversions and so on, those are consequences of a deeper root that God sees as rebellion against him. Let's go to James chapter 5, verse 16. This is mentioned in number 4 of your handout. And the lesson puts this together with the Abraham story in an interesting way. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. So here you have a statement that there is such a thing as intercessory prayer. And the author of this part of the lesson series is wanting us to understand that the reason the Abraham story, the Sodom story, is in this lesson is as an illustration as a poster child for intercessory prayer. And the argument of the Genesis story is that intercessory prayer works. Now you might ask yourself, did Abraham fail when he interceded for Sodom? And the answer is no. Four people were rescued from Sodom that didn't deserve to be rescued. How do we know they didn't deserve? Observe their behavior after the rescue. Lot's wife turns into the pillar of stone. Lot's daughters get him drunk, and then abuse him sexually, end up giving birth to two children. They end up alone and hiding in the wilderness, etc. So did Abraham's intercession make a difference? Lot and his family were not rescued because they were better than the Sodomites. They were rescued because Abraham prayed. And Lot obviously wasn't a poster child for righteousness, for Christian ethics. And yet Lot's prayer saved Zohar. Here's a Gentile city, one that's no better than Sodom. Whatever the problems were with Sodom, Zoar had them too, according to the text. But because Lot prayed, Zoar was spared. And so the story here seems to illustrate that intercessory prayer makes a difference. And when you're thinking of missionary work, that intercessory prayer makes a difference. I think we often feel that praying really is to change us, not anything else. I think it's a very popular conception in today's world. But that's not what we're seeing here in this text, that interceding with God for other people seems to make a big difference. And the question I would ask you to consider is why? What is the function of intercessory prayer in the larger scheme of things? Why on earth would it matter whether or not you 
or I pray for somebody else or for a city or whatever? What's the function of intercessory prayer in the big picture? Livius. I think because God respects freedom and choice, he's not going to go against someone's will per se or interfere. It basically gives him permission where he otherwise would not have access. And so I think we bless people when we pray for them, when we say, hey, God, can you do something in this person's life or in a family member and a loved one? And he gives him access to where normally he would not have access. Mm. Sobering, isn't it? Yeah. That we can make a difference in the lives of people we love. Henry. I have struggled with that for so long, and I don't get satisfied with that answer because that will put on me and us human beings the responsibility for freeing people from suffering. Because if I don't intervene, then God will say, well, nobody's asking me, so I won't be doing anything. I don't think God is waiting for us. That was his plan from the very beginning. That's what he told Adam and Eve. I will resolve this issue. You like it or not. I'm not asking permission. I'm telling you this is what's going to happen. The head of the serpent is going to be crushed, not because any of you is asking it. You don't even know what's going to happen. But I will do it because I cannot stand this mistreatment from the enemy. And it will come to an end. So I think that when I am doing intercessory prayer, it's not to change God. I can only pray for those whenever I am aligned to God's willing to share love. If I am praying, I am getting solidarity with him, becoming on his side, and he can use that as an evidence that he is not alone, but that's not a determinant for him to act. In Sodom, is he the one that offers Abraham to get anybody out from Sodom. And Lot is inviting, go and get anybody out. And he doesn't get anybody out. And are angels that dragged him by force out of the city. So I don't think this is an intercessory element in there. It's my intercession, it just shows alliance with God, but not to change or motivate his decisions. So do you think that what Abraham did made no difference? I mean, Zoar, for example, was going to be destroyed. And the only reason it wasn't was because Lot said, let me go there. It's just a little town. And that's a great point. And I think that it was spared because Lot was there, mm. not because of the prayer. If Lot wouldn't have gone to Soar, it wouldn't be spared. It was what God was showing exactly on the action. Lot, I am committed to show that even though you didn't want to get out, I wasn't punishing the town. I gave open permission to anybody to get out, and you didn't want to invite anybody, and the ones that you invited didn't want to come out. So I am not protecting Zohar, I am protecting you, and you happen to be in Zohar. Let me share a text here, and just see what you all think. It's in the book of Daniel, and it's in chapter 10, and this is one of the few places in the Bible where the curtain is explicitly pulled back. And we see beyond the events around us to, uh, to a bigger picture. In Daniel 10, 12, it says, Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 
21 days. How long had Daniel been praying? According to the text, 21 days, three weeks. It says earlier in the chapter. So that period is very significant. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. And then in verse 20, so he said, do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. Now you have something interesting in this chapter. You have the prince of Persia and the kings of Persia. They're not the same thing. And generally scholars understand the prince of Persia is Satan. And that this heavenly being and Michael are battling the prince of Persia. Now this is not a physical fight. It's not arm wrestling. It's a war of words. That in the context of a cosmic conflict, there are rules of engagement between God and Satan. Because the entire universe is the jury. So God and Satan, God respecting freedom, has limits that God places upon himself. Satan has limits that are placed on him if he wants to win his case. And in that context, what Daniel 10 seems to suggest to me is that our prayers do make a difference. The words that we speak are not just for us, but they do make a difference with angelic beings. That if someone is not praying to God, is not interested in salvation, someone else praying for them can authorize God to act in ways that maybe he otherwise could not. Not because God can't, but in the context of the cosmic conflict, God could not do that and win his case. But if God can point to believers and saying, these people are praying. Now, I think I get where you're coming from, Henry. You don't want another guilt trip, okay? And we've all suffered so many of those <laughs> within the church at different times. And I don't think that's what God wants us to feel in all of this, but just to encourage us that prayer does matter. And it may matter in more significant ways than simply our own transformation. Anyway, just some thoughts there for you to consider, all of you. Larry. I have a serious problem with calling what Abraham is doing with God is intercessory prayer, because the only person that Abraham is trying to work on is God. God did ask Job to have intercessory prayer for Job's friends, and had the people that left Sodom indicated that there was any change in how they thought then I would say, yes, what Abraham was doing was intercessory prayer, not just negotiating a fait accompli outcome to try and change that. And I think that this whole idea, because of the guilt and things that are involved, it's very thin ice when we talk about this kind of stuff. I'm hesitant to even bring up the ideas that I did, but I think that because it is so important today, especially because it, it seems like there's a lot of Evangelical Christianity is talking a lot about intercessory prayer because of how the condition of the world is, and they expect God to have their version of an outcome. This is easy to misunderstand, and it's not about manipulating God. It's not about getting our way or anything like that. It's simply expressing what is in our hearts to God 
And my sense is from Daniel and from statements in the writings of Ellen White and other places, my sense is that it does matter in ways that maybe we don't fully understand. Daniel 10 gives us a window of possibility. But in a universe that is free, God's actions are constrained by that freedom. And when free agents, free human beings, take it upon themselves to express how they feel, that it can make a difference in the tug of war, if you will, the war of words between Christ and Satan. That's my conviction. But I recognize this is somewhat controversial, and I appreciate the skill with which some have spoken otherwise. Michael? Well, I'm just echoing what you just said, John, and that is intercessory prayer does work. There's lots of examples of that, and some of them are miraculous, some of the results. That doesn't mean that when intercessory prayer doesn't result in what we hope for, that some guy is dying of cancer and we pray for him, he goes ahead and dies of cancer. That doesn't mean that God doesn't care and doesn't listen, but these examples of intercessory prayer, I believe, help Bring us closer to God, who is the fountain of all good and all healing. All right, Lou. And that's why we pray for our children and our families and the people that we know. And just like Michael said, for those who are ill and sick and dying. And no matter what the outcome, we know that God is there. He is with our children. He loves them more than we do. And we can actually trust him in that. But I think God wants to hear whatever is on our heart and our mind for those that we love and know about and other issues that are going on in this world. So we just have a loving, wonderful God, and he wants to hear what's in my heart for whoever I am praying for. Okay, Jim and Diane? There is a very precious sentence in Great Controversy where it says, God grants an answer to the prayer of faith that which he would not bestow if we did not thus ask. Yes, that was part of the evidence I was addressing. I don't understand it, but we are certainly encouraged to pray for others, sometimes for healing, sometimes for conversion, etc. But we don't want to turn it into a guilt trip and where people feel like it's their responsibility every time something goes wrong. Toxic faith and healthy faith are often a fine line between them. Well, we're coming to the end here, and we haven't yet looked at chapter 19, but let me just go quickly through it with you. Interestingly enough, when the two men, the angels, whoever they are, when they arrive in Sodom, Lot does exactly the same thing that Abraham did. He bows to the ground. He says, by all means, do come. Let me wash your feet. Let me give you some refreshment, something to eat, something to drink. So Lot is described as acting exactly the same way as Abraham. Does he know that these are divine figures? No. He simply is doing what he's accustomed to doing for strangers. And he makes a feast, etc., and takes them into his house. In verses 18 to 22, Lot intercedes for Zoar. And God spares it. So God's mercy is shown to Zoar for Lot's sake. God's mercy in Lot's case is kind of painful because he doesn't want to leave town. And his wife doesn't want to leave town. They don't want to leave the friends and all that they have made. Just an interesting piece. Why the urgency on the part of these angels? Yeah, quick, quick, we got to go now. I don't know. But the Andrews Bible commentary on Genesis has an interesting suggestion that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by meteorites, and that God, of course, would know when the meteorites are striking, and his whole mission of being there is getting the people out. And the urgency was the meteorites weren't going to slow down 
just because Lot was dallying and they were desperate to get them out in time. So that's just a possibility to consider that God knew the cities would be destroyed. The problem was how to get people out in time. And God would have intervened for all of them if they had been willing to listen. Uh, verse 24, I'd like you to look at it. Remember, we talked about the possibility of a trinity. You know, are all these three characters part of the Godhead? The answer, I think, is no, but you're barking in the right direction. Genesis 19, verse 24, it says, Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven. This is the one place, I think, you know, we mentioned earlier something about the plural, let us make man in our own image, let us go down to Babel and see what is going on here, etc. But even stronger than that, you have Yahweh on earth. He's been talking to Abraham. He's been interacting. Abraham's been interceding with him or whatever you want to call it. And when comes time, the fire is rained down from Yahweh on earth, drawn from Yahweh in heaven. That's pretty dramatic in the Hebrew. Now, there are various things one could say about that, perhaps from a Christian perspective. Uh, the idea that Yahweh could be separated is not as you know, stressful in any way, because once they came to the conviction that Jesus was included in the one God of Judaism, they also noticed that Jesus was not his father. He prayed to his father. The father came down at his baptism and said, well done, my son, etc. So the conviction that Jesus Christ was God, but not all of God, was what led eventually to the Trinity, which goes beyond the explicit teachings of Scripture, but is a reasonable philosophical result. So here we see the Godhead working together to bring about the situation. And it's flood language, the rain down, echoes the Hebrew of the flood story. So this is a mini judgment like the one of the flood. So anyway, Abraham sees the smoke going up from Sodom from the same place where he was talking about Sodom with the Lord. So the Lord brought Abraham to a spot where he could see the city of Sodom and it was there they had the conversation. What about 50? What about 45? What about 40? Etc. So the story comes back on itself and concludes where it has started. The lesson has a concluding challenge, as they've been doing this quarter, and that is found in number seven of your handout. It says, a challenge for this week, find a way to contact someone who is being directly affected by a difficult situation similar to your own. Tell that person you're praying for him or her and ask God to show you what you can do to help. And the question I wanted you to discuss, but we're out of time, I'd like you to think about at least what experience do you have with approaches like this? I suspect not everyone will be comfortable with what the lesson says here. Is this a useful challenge to find somebody who's you know, saying, hey, I know what you're going through, etc. Ask God to show you how you can help. Consider that possibility. Think about it in the week to come, because that's the challenge the lesson leaves us with. But let's close with prayer at this point. Dear Lord, we thank you for these stories. You've stretched our minds, not always in exactly the same direction. And we're grateful for this conversation that has caused us to wrestle with the text and learn from each other. And I pray that you would continue to be with us throughout the week to come. May our knowledge of you be not only in the head, but also in the heart. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.